Today's episode is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn has smart banks of practice questions for a wide variety of high-stakes examinations. Are you a med student? They have smart banks for step one and two. Are you a resident in the field of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or anesthesiology? They have you covered with smart banks for the exams you will encounter along your journey. But this is not only for physicians. PAs and MPs can prepare for their exams using TrueLearn as well. They can even help nurses prepare for the NCLEX. Click the link in the show notes for a discount by using the code EDDIEJOMP. D25. Crush your upcoming exams by using TrueLearn. Welcome to the Saving Lives podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. For historical context, today is the 20th of December of 2022. The year's coming to an end, folks, and I'm going to be doing the third part of my cardiogenic shock lecture. First and foremost, I'd really like to thank everybody for your support. I've gotten a lot of shares and a lot of downloads to this podcast series so far on cardiogenic shock. I've gotten a whole bunch of great feedback. And um, I'm just glad everybody's been enjoying it. So if you have been enjoying it and you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast and uh, leave me a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to, as it definitely helps this reach other audiences. So let's go ahead and resume kind of where we were at before with regards to cardiogenic shock and how to best manage these patients. See, I mentioned before that the mortality rate for these patients hovers around 50% from a historical perspective. And we need to try to find a way to give our patient an advantage and help them hopefully get over the cardiogenic shock and have a better than 50% survival. But we kind of can't fly blind with these patients. We need to know exactly what we're doing with regards to the hemodynamics. And one of the things that fell out of favor from a historical standpoint is the utilization of a PA catheter, also called a Swan-Gans catheter. Now, I have my own biases and my own personal thoughts, but but the reality is I'm, if I'm going to say how I feel and just get that off my chest, the, the vast majority of people don't know how to interpret advanced hemodynamics and they don't really know how to interpret Swan numbers. This is something that is not currently being trained on very in-depth, for lack of a better term, at most uh, at most residency nor fellowship training programs. And therefore, when people do encounter swans, A, they don't know what they're looking at, B, they don't know how to interpret the waveforms, and C, they don't know how to put it all together. And therefore, we're not seeing these fantastic outcomes, which, by the way, a catheter should not be helping people survive. It should just be helping us take care of these individuals. But sort of the straw that broke the camel's back from a data perspective was way back in 2005. So we're talking about 17 years ago. There was this trial called the ESCAPE trial, which is which stands for Evaluation Study of Congestive Heart Failure and Pulmonary Artery Catheterization Effectiveness. And again, this was published in JAMA of 2005. And this was a randomized control trial where they looked at 413 patients who either had just a clinical, clinical assessment or a PA catheter and clinical assessment. And their primary endpoint was a combination of days alive as well as out of the hospital. And if you're a person who just reads the abstract on these studies, you would say that, hey, there's no difference in that cumulative proportion of you know patients who had days alive and out of the hospital. So there's no benefit to having a PA catheter placed in place in, in patients. However, one has to read the fine details and notice that these patients, first and foremost, were not that sick. But as an aside, you know, people just hang their hats on whatever the conclusions are on a particular study and they say, okay, this is the way that we should be practicing moving on, moving forward, and kind of confirming their own biases. Since then, a number of a number of institutions and different study registries have kept on using PA catheters and they've actually 
looked at their data. And for example, in a cardiology journal in 2014, they published an observational trial, again, not a randomized control trial, but an observational trial of over a thousand patients and found that there was a decrease in the cumulative probability of death when patients who were in cardiogenic shock uh, from you know, acute heart failure in this case, when they did have a PA catheter compared to the controls. So data here, again, not a, a randomized control trial, but data does exist where they show that cardiogenic shock patients do do better from a mortality standpoint in a statistically significant manner. And then one of the more recent studies published in 2020 in another heart failure cardiology journal looked at patients who were in cardiogenic shock and whether it was associated with lower in-hospital mortality. And spoiler alert, since I'm discussing it, in this retrospective study looking at over 1,400 patients, they did find that patients who had a complete assessment with a PA catheter did do better than those who did not have a PA catheter placed. So when I specified that these patients had a complete assessment with the PA catheter, that means that they floated the swan, and different things that they actually calculated included the PA systolic, the PA diastolic, the wedge pressure, and the pulmonary artery saturation. Also, they measured the right atrial pressure, which you know we know as the CVP. And what they did find, looking at the sicker patients, in this case, they stratified the patients with a Sky Stage D. And just to refresh your memory from previous podcast, Sky Stage D are the patients who are deteriorating, and uh, Sky Stage E. These are the patients who are an extremist, the patients who are, quote, trying to die, as the literature stated in that other study. Again, not my words. But especially in these patients who are far sicker, there was a statistically significant difference in mortality where patients who had this complete assessment with the PA catheter did better than patients who did not have a PA catheter in place. No, there's not a randomized control trial, but it does show that there's a benefit. And then more recently, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in June of 2022 in a critical care journal that looked at different observational studies and over 1 million patients. Hey, a million patients is no joke. That's a lot of patients. And what they found in in these patients with cardiogenic shock is that the short-term mortality in patients who had a PA catheter in place was 36% versus 47% in patients who did not have a PA catheter in place. When you plug in this 36% in the PA catheter group versus a 47% in the the no PA catheter group, you will find that the number needed to treat to save one life by using a PA catheter compared to not using a PA catheter is just 9.1. So we do see a mortality benefit in, you know, again, this observational study, a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational studies, excuse me, which again had more than a million patients in it. But we all have nifty devices at our respective ICUs, which we use to help guide our hemodynamics. And a type of technology that's discussed in the literature is something called bioreactants. Now, I'm not going to mention the name of any bioreactants company, but I will state that there was a study that was published in 2020 in a cardiology journal that said that insert name of company here correlates poorly with both indirect FIC and thermodilution measurements of cardiac output in patients with cardiogenic shock, end quote. So it kind of throws the bioreactance company under the bus when it comes to looking at patients with cardiogenic shock. 
There's another type of technology that we have at our respective ICUs that uses a type of technology, <laughs> again, that uses pulse contour analysis to help us identify different parts of hemodynamics in patients with cardiogenic shock. And when I have actually reviewed these data, looking at different manufacturers, which I'm not going to mention here, the, the data is kind of wish-washy. It's not as reliable as we think it could be especially when you know we're dealing with something that just has such high mortality rate at the end of the day. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A reason why the SWAN numbers are so important to help us manage patients who are in cardiogenic shock is because it allows us to calculate something called the cardiac power output. For those of you who are unfamiliar with what the cardiac power output is, you could go ahead and check a podcast episode. I believe it was season two, episode 17. So go all the way back. I believe I published it in May of 2021, but I discussed what cardiac power output was extensively. But if you don't want to go listen to that, I'll just go over it right now. CPO is an, an equation that is CPO is equal to MAP times cardiac output, all of this over 451. And so the reason why we use CPO is when they looked at patients from the shock registry trial published in the early 2000s, they found that Cardiac power output was the strongest independent hemodynamic correlate of in-hospital mortality for patients with cardiogenic shock. Then further analyzing these data, they found that the key target CPO is for it to be greater than 0.6, and that means that the patients have a higher likelihood of surviving their cardiogenic shock insult. For the sake of not overlapping what I've discussed on previous podcasts, please check out that episode on cardiac power output, also called CPO, to see how it relates to survival and also how it relates to the correlation of utilization of inotropes as well as how having a higher lactate with a lower CPO decreases survival in a substantial way. Another reason that a pulmonary artery catheter will be beneficial in our patients is that it will allow us to measure something called the pulmonary artery pulsatility index. This is another measurement which we frequently do in our ICUs when taking care of patients who are in cardiogenic shock to help us assess what's going on with the right heart. That being said, I recorded a podcast that was not recorded not so long ago, season three, episode 20, uh, that was published on the 6th of July of this year. And, you know, it's had over 3,000 downloads right now, so it's something that people find quite interesting. But the way you actually calculate PAPI is that you look at the PA systolic minus the PA diastolic, and you divide this all by the right atrial pressure, also known as the CVP. And the reason why we actually utilize this hemodynamic parameter for patients who are in cardiogenic shock and you're suspecting RV dysfunction is that it is more sensitive and specific than other measurements that, you know, we see in our respective uh, ICUs and, and things that we have been using historically, like right ventricular stroke work, things like that, that have kind of, kind of gone in the way of the dodo. But <clears throat> the whole key point, as I apologetically clear my throat, is that you need to know what you're doing for patients as an exit strategy to help them survive these insults. Because the, the reality is that 
these patients, if you just put them on dopamine or dobutamine or milrinone or epi or whatever, and just hope that they're going to get better. Well, you know, you, you, you could try that, but the reality is that these patients need a little bit more support than just giving them inotropes and catecholamines, which increase the myocardial oxygen consumption and have been shown from a historical standpoint to not give us a survival rate greater than, you know, 50%, as I've mentioned on numerous times during the course of these three podcasts. But that being said, there's also this whole rescue modality of sorts, but now it's becoming far more mainstream and utilized every day in our respective ICUs, which is something called mechanical circulatory support. For the sake of disclosures, I'm not going to discuss any particular device in general. However, uh, conflict of interest, well, honestly, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, sway things in one direction or the other based on my underlying conflicts of interest, but the data is quite clear that the sooner we can give patients support utilizing mechanical circulatory support, the better they're going to do. And there's data from this uh, published in cardiology journals from 2017. And again, all this, you can check it out in the show notes. I have all these citations that show that if you initiate mechanical circulatory support from the time of shock onset, and if this takes place within 1.25 hours of shock onset, their survival rate for these patients is 66%. Again, historically, mortality for, sub, for for cardiogenic shock is 50%. However, there's a delay in care to where the patient, instead of having mechanical circulatory support placed immediately, instead they wait between 1.25 to 4.25 hours. The survival rate drops from 66% down to 37%. And this number even worsens further when you take longer than 4.25 hours to escalate care in these patients. And one sees that the survival rate here decreases to 26%. Basically, waiting a whole night shift before you escalate care on a patient who comes in with cardiogenic shock, just hoping for the recovery to come in in the morning. Well, the reality is that the likelihood that these patients are going to recover from their insult and just get better, it just decreases significantly. So the big push here is that if the patient needs a device, the device needs to be placed as soon as humanly possible. And we could also see how these survival rates plummet as the patients progress and worsen in their cardiogenic shock if they don't receive the support that they need. For example, if a patient is in cardiogenic shock but they're on zero inotropes, the mortality rate, or excuse me, the survival rate here is about 68%. However, if they're on one inotrope, the survival rate drops to 46%. If they're on two inotropes, the survival drops to just 35%. Again, only 35% of people survive. If they are on three inotropes or even more than that, again, you're looking at about 35% survival dropping into the 20s. If these patients need help, just adding more jet fuel on them, just adding more catecholamines to them and and inotropes, that's not going to save their life. They need something to kind of be the safety net as they fall and try to catch them and try to bring them back to a point where they have a higher likelihood of surviving. And lastly, there's data that states that, quote, Every one-hour delay in escalation of therapy was associated with a 9.9 increased risk of death. So if we're looking at a pathology that historically has a 50% mortality, we really need to jump on these patients and escalate their care and take care of them as perfectly as humanly possible so that we do not continue with this 50% mortality moving forward. I mean, we got to do everything we got to do to save these patients' lives. If it requires for us to get more comfortable floating swans and doing advanced hemodynamics, having our nursing staff know how to do it, having our residence fellows, MPs, I mean, I'll tell you, the MPs at my institution are floating swans. So, you know, putting all these things together, um, 
this is what's necessary to take the best care of patients possible. I'd like to thank everybody for following along with this podcast. I may do a part four. However, again, I don't want my uh, conflict of interest to skew my recommendations moving forward. But all in all, we just got to do what we need to do in order to improve mortality in patients who are in cardiogenic shock so that we do better overall than this 50% historically, this, this 50% mortality that we have historically been seeing. Thanks, everybody, for supporting the podcast. Hope you all have a great day. Bye.